Thanks, Brother Matt. I really appreciate that. Um, actually, also, I want to say thank you to you, uh, my listeners. Uh, this is the final sermon in the book of Hosea. Uh, so, praise God, you've gotten through it. Uh, it's been a little tentative at some times. There's been a few difficult passages, but now you can say that you've attended a church where somebody was crazy enough to preach through the entirety of the prophet Hosea. And next time, Joel. But it's important that we understand what Hosea is doing here. Because This final chapter, the last chapter of Hosea, helps us to understand what the whole message was about, why we had to go through all of those points before this. And so hopefully I I pray that you'll be able to join me in this. And part of the usefulness of going through Old Testament prophets is the understanding that the people of Jesus' time probably understood their prophets better than we do. They probably read them more frequently. They heard them talked about more frequently. And because of that, they would have understood some of the things that Jesus said a little differently than sometimes we do. Let me give you an example. It's from Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. Very simple, small little pericope in the scriptures. It says, Now after John was arrested... Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Now there's been an awful lot of ink spilled over these two verses. And I think a great deal of the truth of what these two verses is is saying is encapsulated in Hosea chapter 14. I'll get to that. But I have to admit, when I first read that passage in Mark, when I first, I was a new believer, I was reading through the Bible, suddenly the Bible had come alive to me in a way that it hadn't before. I was reading through the Bible, and as a sign that getting saved doesn't mean your understanding of the Bible has increased very much necessarily, I kind of misunderstood what Jesus was saying here. I thought Jesus was coming up with a sequence. He was telling us uh, that there were two things that we needed to do, that we needed to repent and then believe in the gospel of God. That uh, that was part of recognizing that the kingdom was coming. And what was the gospel? That the kingdom was coming. And I came up with all sorts of interesting ideas about what I thought the kingdom was. But more importantly, I thought that you know, repentance and believing were two different things. I was wrong. They, they are two separate concepts. They are things that you can have in your head as two different things. And I can talk about them as different things. Repentance is turning away from sin. Believing is placing your trust in something. And, and, and I say that because the word there, uh, pisteo, that's used in Mark, 15, Mark, Mark 1.15, is actually the same word that they translate as faith. So what we're talking about here is, you know, repentance and putting your faith in Christ. And I, you, you can, they are two different things. It is different to turn away from sin than it is to turn to Jesus in the sense that they, it, is a different, it is a different conceptual idea. But 
they're honestly two sides to the same coin. You see, while I can analytically separate them, while I can think about them as different things, and if I read about them in a systematic theology book, there'll be two different sections. If I separate them in the Christian life, well, <laughs> it's kind of like the way you analyze a frog in biology class. You may be able to understand where the parts fit together in the frog, but the result is the frog is dead. If in my Christian life I separate out repentance and faith, my Christian life is dead. You can't take these apart in reality. Why is that? Well, it's pretty simple. You can turn away from sin to other sins. If I give up my idolatry of money or possessions for the sake of a romantic relationship, I'm still an idolater. I've just changed the object of my idolatry. The thing I'm placing in the position that God deserves above all else is something different, but it's still not God. And that's a big problem. But of course, that's not a problem that we generally would, have a pro would run into. No, we're all good Christians. We go to church weekly. I mean, there's, uh, I guess, 30, 40 of you sitting in SDA right now, and there's a bunch of you on computers right now actually spending time watching some guy open the book of Hosea and explain it to you. So obviously, you'll say that we're, we're probably a little bit better than, say, people who would... Uh, worship their girlfriend or boyfriend or husband or wife or their children or their jobs or their church building or their theology or the fact that they follow rules. And you see, that's the problem. That last one there, the fact that we follow rules, that's actually the most common way that Christians fall into idolatry. You see, we see the evils of sin, we are convicted of the evils of sin, and we say, I'm not going to do those sins anymore, so I'm going to follow all of the rules I need to avoid those sins. And honestly, the rules we'll follow are going to be as varied as the sins we're trying to turn away from. And don't get me wrong, it's important to stop sinning. But be careful that the way you stop sinning isn't by creating another false god. You see, that happens fairly regularly. It, Jesus ran into it. I mean, if you go to Matthew chapter 23, the entire chapter is pretty much Jesus having a diatribe against the scribes and the Pharisees. One of the most common phrases repeated in that chapter is, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, for you, and he keeps going. The one that get, makes me run cold, because I'm an evangelical, I believe that we need to move people to saving faith in Jesus. I need to go out and make disciples of all nations. I need to teach people about the gospel and help them to come to believe it. And Jesus gives this thing, this passage in Matthew 23, verse 15. He says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte. And when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. There is a way we can do our Christian faith that isn't very Christian. 
we can seek to see people saved in a way that they don't actually get saved and are in fact simply trusting in rules that we've made up. They're, uh, they, they're agreeing with our idol instead of actually pointing their eyes and their hearts towards the real, true God. And this wasn't just something that, that happens to us and that happened to the scribes and the Pharisees. It's also something you'll see in Hosea. I preached on it a while ago. This is Hosea chapter 8, verses 1 and 2. It says, set your trumpet to the lips, one like a vulture is over the house of the Lord, because they have transgressed my covenant and rebelled against my law. How have they done that? To me they cried, my God, we, Israel, knew you, and yet the Israel has spurned the good. The enemy shall pursue him. You can be fully thinking that you're saved without actually being saved if the only thing you're focusing on is your repentance. Similarly, as I'm not going to take too much from uh, my brother Matt as he's preaching through the book of James, and this is the theme of the book of James, you can be so focused on belief, on faith, on trust, that you keep sinning. You imagine that you, your, your faith makes it so that you don't have to do anything about it. And as Matt will probably repeatedly tell us, faith like that is dead. You see, the main part of repentance, of turning from wickedness, is not merely what you turn from, though you do need to turn from sin, but where you turn to from sin, namely to God. This is the message of Hosea chapter 14. We have a clear lesson here about what true, saving, repentant faith, what conversion looks like. You see, the book of Hosea gives us the context for what Jesus was saying in Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15 what the kingdom of God looks like, what the promises of God were, what Jesus was telling the people around him was happening in his life, in his death, in his resurrection, in his glorious ascension. So just to review the book of Hosea so far. You remember Hosea started with the story of Hosea and Gomer. Hosea is a prophet. He is a godly prophet. There is no in, there's nothing in the book saying that... Hosea has done anything wrong whatsoever. And God calls him to marry a woman he knows will cheat on him, Gomer. And Gomer does cheat on him. And the kind of feelings and anger that somebody would have when faced with that level of betrayal, of facing someone you love, someone you care about deeply, who then turns on you, betrays you, goes off to another place, even though you have been every bit of the good partner that you should be, and yet she still went astray. Then, after the story of the redemption of Gomer, as after God tells Hosea to buy back his wife out of sin and slavery... God begins to explain through the lips of Hosea the full 
problem that Israel has. And that continues until just before the chapter we're looking at right now. Israel is sinning. Israel is rebelling. And God has wrath justly on that rebellion. God cares deeply about evil. And the worst part that we tend to forget when we think about God caring about evil is that honestly, sometimes the evil is us. When God has just wrath on evil, he sometimes has just wrath on our evil. And into this, into this situation, Hosea gives us chapter 14, which says essentially, repent and believe the good news. First of all, from verses 1 to 3, it says, Return, O Israel, to the Lord your God, for you have stumbled because of your iniquity. Take with you words and return to the Lord. Say to him, take away all iniquity, accept what is good, and we will pay with bulls the vows of our lips. Assyria shall not save us. We will not ride on horses. We will say no more our God to the work of our hands. In you, the orphan finds mercy. So verse one, the clearest message is return to the Lord. This is the central part of repentance. Turning to the Lord. Actually seeking the Lord, the Lord God above all else. Not merely seeing the wages of your sin, not merely mourning over the things that you have done and the ways that you have avoided God, but turning to God. And Hosea gives a strange, a strange command to the people of Israel. You remember that this is during the times of the temple and there's a whole system about dealing with the sins of the people that seems to involve uh, sacrifices on the altars. And it does include that when verse two, it says, accept what is good and we will pay with bulls the vows of our lips. But first, first and foremost, Hosea tells the people of Israel to take with you words and return to the Lord. Now, words have a bad rap in our modern society, mainly because we like to, we generally separate our words from our actions. Um, a lot of times we'll say one thing and do something else. That's the very definition of hypocrisy. When Jesus was saying, woe to you, scribes and Pharisee hypocrites, that's what he means. They say one thing and they do something else. And we as a society tend to do that fairly regularly. We say one thing and we do something else. Oh no, I care about free speech, but I don't like your free speech, so you should shut up. Um, no, no, really, really, I really do believe in uh, plurality and differences of opinion, but I'm going to pretend that I don't need to hear you. No, seriously, I really care about the poor, but I'm not going to actually do anything about it. Yet, there is something to be said about words. A lot of times, uh, when it comes to the things that we, when we want to convince ourselves that we're good, we're silent about it. We tell ourselves silently in our own heads. Um, 
In that way, we can sometimes ignore the things that we're saying to ourselves in our heads. It's different if you actually say it out loud. Uh, I've recently taken up the uh, Pastor Steve takes, t- does journals, and I've recently been starting to do journals myself. And I found it's very interesting that if I write down the things that God is teaching me, it's harder for me to ignore them after I've written them down. I think the same thing happens when I speak them out loud. If I say out loud what I believe, it's harder for me to ignore what I'm saying I believe. I mean, I can still be a hypocrite, but I actually know that I'm being a hypocrite when I do that. So that's why I think Hosea is telling the people to take with them words, to say out loud what they need to believe. Because again, they've convinced themselves that they already know God. By saying that they're turning back to God, they're actually making a clear break between the time where they were in rebellion to him, when they were actually worshiping the work of their own hands, and turning to the true God, the true God that can, act, can help, the true God that can save, the true God that, as verse 3 at the end there says, in you the orphan finds mercy. He says, and that, that's what he's saying in verse 3, turn away from the false savers. saviors. Assyria shall not save us. We will not ride on horses. And we will no more say to our God to the work of our hands. The work of our hands can't save us. Assyria can't save us. That's ma- massive geopolitical power can't save us. The, our, our technology will not save us. Very important message for those of us right now, especially technophiles like myself. Your technology isn't going to save you. It can be useful, but it's not going to give you the things you most need, namely a relationship with God. Trust instead in the true Savior, in whom the orphan truly finds mercy. So this first section here is basically saying, repent. Turn away from the things that are valueless, but Do it by turning to the God who is valuable. Which becomes more clear in the next few verses. Starting to read at verse 4 to 8 here. I will heal their apostasy. don't, Don't skip that over. I will heal their apostasy. You'd think apostasy would just be something that you need to repent of. You know, you you turn back to God and your apostasy is gone. You've put your faith in God, right? And yet, God says that it's his work that will heal their apostasy, that will turn them back to himself. That he will love them freely. I will love them freely for my anger has turned from them. I will be like the dew to Israel. He shall blossom like the lily. He shall take root like the trees of Lebanon. His shoots shall spread out. His beauty shall be like the olive and the fragrance like, and his fragrance like Lebanon. Lebanon in the, in the pre-area, not Lebanon now. Uh, by the way, we should be praying for Lebanon. Uh, they're going through an awful lot of trouble, especially after that explosion this week. But the Lebanon that he's talking about is a Lebanon that had great, uh, great plant life, that had had 
a lot of water. It had trees. You'll hear in the Old Testament about the trees of Lebanon where a lot of the timber came from for the building in Israel. And his fragrance shall be like Lebanon, which had a lot of plants and so a lot of fragrant things around. I have a little plant of apple mint in my office and I break off parts of it every once in a while just so that I can get the smell. And that's the fragrance that God, that God says the people of Israel will have after turning to him. They shall return and dwell beneath my shadow. They shall flourish like the grain. They shall blossom like the vine. Their fame shall be like the wine of Lebanon. O Ephraim, what do I have I to do with idols? It is I who answer and look after you. I am like an evergreen cypress. From me comes your fruit. God calls on his people to trust in him, to put their faith in him, to believe in him. To trust in God, first of all, to heal, to heal their apostasy, to heal their turning away from him, to heal the wrath that God justly has on them and so the injustice that they have. God will heal and the people of Israel are to turn to God for that healing. Second, he calls on them to trust in God to provide, verses six and seven. And this is kind of poetic here. His shoots shall spread out, his beauty shall be like the olive and his fragrance like like Lebanon. They shall return and dwell beneath my shadow. They shall flourish like the grain and they, they shall blossom like the vine. Their fame shall be like the wine of Lebanon. And just as an aside here, that's poetry. Uh, I know that people get mad at saying this, people saying this about the Bible, but the way to read this literally isn't to imagine that God is going to turn them into plants. God is saying something much stronger than just merely the words. This is because this is how poetry works. When Robert Burns says, my love is like a red, red rose. He's not claiming that the woman he loves is red, that they are a flower or that they grow with thorns on them. He's saying something about the beauty of his love. He's saying something about how much he values his love. That it's different from a rose, but much, much greater. Uh, if you're into Shakespeare, William Shakespeare in uh, Sonnet 130 goes into it. He explains a little bit uh, clearly when he says, I grant I never saw a goddess go. My mistress, when she walks, treads on the ground. And yet, by heaven, I think my love as rare as any she belied by false compare. What Shakespeare is saying is be careful of the comparisons we make in poetry because what we're talking about is, is different but infinitely more valuable or at least as valuable as the thing we're talking about. And so when God says through Hosea that his shoots shall spread out and his beauty shall like be, be like the olive, he's not saying that the beauty will merely be like that of an olive, but that the beauty will be something far greater than you could ever imagine. Think of the most beautiful things you can. Think of the sweetest smells you can. Think of that feeling you get among the sweetest smells you can imagine. That's 
the situation you can have under God's protection. That's what it means to be under the beneath my shadow and to flourish like grain. They will no longer be dying and, and limited. They will be able to spread out and their lives, their hearts, their joy will know no bounds because they are under God's shadow. The all surpass, what Hosea is getting on here is that we place our faith in God because God's beauty is all surpassing, that his justice is complete, that his value is beyond anything we could ever ask or imagine. And by this, we are strengthened, we are changed, we are redeemed, we're converted, and we're ultimately glorified by the power and strength and value and beauty of God. And that's where we need to place our faith, place our trust, place our belief. And the result of that is going to be that lesser joys, lesser strengths, lesser beauties will seem lesser. They'll be in their proper context because you know where the true beauty lies. You know where the true justice lies. It's not that you'll be somehow become a less loving person. You'll be a more loving person because you know what real love looks like. Because you know God's love, it'll be easier to love others because it, your love is participating in this massive greater love. You don't become unjust because of your faith in God's justice. You become more just. You see the truth of justice that it doesn't lie in ourselves, that I don't need to judge other people based on how just I am. I can simply say that I and my brothers and sisters and people who need to trust in Jesus, we all need to trust in the justice of Christ because we are all unjust. we would see what true wealth is. That the true wealth is to be found in God. And so when we see goods and kindred, if they stand in the way of the greater value of Jesus Christ, we know which way we need to go to follow the true value. And if necessary, now. We don't need to stay in rebellion to God. The kingdom of God is at hand. You can come to the king. We can trust in him, in his goodness. By the way, that's what we call faith. To trust in God. You see, repent and believe. That's the call of Hosea 14. Not believe in something abstract, but believe in the truth of who God is for us. Who God is generally and can be for us if only we would turn to him in repentance. But we are going to need wisdom to do this. Look at verse 9. Whoever is wise... Let him understand these things. Whoever is discerning, let him know them. 
For the ways of the Lord are right, and the upright walk in them, but transgressors stumble in them. Notice that, the same phrase there that he talked about in verse 1 of of chapter 14, the transgressors stumble in them. It says in 14.1, for you have stumbled because of your iniquity. What he's saying is you no longer need to stumble. You no longer need to walk in darkness. You can trust in God and to do that is to no longer be a transgressor, but to have wisdom, to be discerning. To repent and believe means that we have a wisdom that transcends other wisdoms. And I, it's interesting to use the word wisdom here because there's a couple of verses that I think we need to be bringing to mind at this point. This is 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 14. <laughs> starting to read at verse 14, talking about the word of God. But as for you, continue on what you have learned and firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So brothers and sisters, as you're hearing me speak from Hosea 14, the first application we need to understand from this about our need to repent and believe is to understand in repenting and believing, we need to know who God is. And God has revealed himself to us in this book. Well, this is actually 66 books brought together in a single codex. But in the word of God, we can become wise to salvation. Wise as Hosea 14 tells us we can be wise. Knowing who God is and then being able to place our trust in him because we know who he is. We can see his beauty and so trust in his beauty. We can see the kinds of things he does for his people so we can trust that he will do those things for us. We can see what he has done to put away the wrath that he has against our evil and to reconcile us as children, co-heirs with Christ. And friends, I'm, I'm, I'm alluding to whole tons of scriptural passages there. Look deeply, look often into the word of God that it might help make you wise unto salvation. But this kind of wisdom isn't easy. Honestly, I, I know it can be trouble to read your Bible and sometimes Sometimes you just don't have the heart to seek after him through the word. And the Bible talks about that too. This is James chapter 1 verse 5. Notice what this thing says. If any of you lacks wisdom. If any of you lacks wisdom. If I don't even have the wisdom to look into the word of God and see God for who he is and turn to him. Ask God who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given to him, trusting in who God is, that God can answer this prayer. 
Friends, if you don't have the ability or you feel incapable of seeing the truth of who God is, ask him to open your eyes. Help him to see the beauty of who he is, the truth of who he is, so that you can can turn to him, so that you can return to the Lord. And in so doing, turn away from all of the things that are around, the things that can just so easily ensnare us and take us away from the Lord. Four, the ways of the Lord are right and the upright walk in them, but transgressors stumble in them. Brothers, sisters, friends, and people who don't yet know who Jesus is. Please, this week, set aside in your heart the desire to see who he is, to look deeply into the beauty of God, to see who he really is according to his word, not trying to find ways to justify ourselves, but finding ways to make ourselves wise and put away the foolishness that keeps us apart from God. And that all begins with a prayer. Pray to God that he would give you wisdom, trusting that he will because he will. But most importantly, recognizing that the kingdom of God, the kingdom where all of these things that we see in Hosea 14 for the people of Israel are made true, not just for the people of Israel, but for those who are grafted into the people of Israel through the blood of Jesus Christ. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the good news. Let's pray. Lord God, praise you for the word of God. Thank you for putting me in a position where my job is literally to look into your word, to look deeply into your word, and to seek you. Praise you that above all else, you are God, you are holy. Lord God, I pray that those who hear me today, whether they're listening right now at the SDA, whether they're listening online at home, or whether they're listening to this sermon days, weeks, or even months after this, that they would hear a much better sermon than I preached, but that you would open their eyes to your glory, that you would give them the grace to see you as valuable as who you are, to find their joy in you, and so turn from wickedness and live. May many repent and believe in the good news of Jesus Christ. Amen.